Have you ever wondered what happened to the legendary Chuck Norris? I recently saw a health video he made and I was surprised. He's in his 80s and still seems to have his energy and health. He says he's even stronger, has more stamina, and plenty of energy left over for his grandkids since making one simple health change that helps his digestion and nutrition. He says he still feels like he's in his 50s. His wife made the same change and she's never felt better. She says she feels 10 years younger and she has energy all day. Many of us do not include the fruits, vegetables, and other herbs that increase health and energy in our own diets. Chuck Norris made a special video that explains how he incorporated these things with one simple product. You can watch it by going to mymorningkick.com forward slash Harris. It may change your approach to your own health. Once again, that's mymorningkick.com forward slash Harris. Hey everyone, welcome to the Conversations That Matter podcast. I am still on the road traveling, so using my cell phone, but uh, Monday you can look forward to normal audio quality back in the uh, makeshift studio I have, and I'm going to be actually talking with A.D. Robles, possibly William Wolf. I'm not sure who else, still trying to arrange things uh, to talk about what's happened over the last two weeks on social media in regards to the attacks on cultural Christianity, Christian nationalism, Christendom more broadly. This is kind of a wide net that's being spread here. And uh, what that all means, and, and my goal is really to get down to the root issues. Uh, the, I'm very discouraged to see some of the reactions, the fire-breathing reactions that I've seen. It reminds me so much of the way that the quote-unquote woke church reacted against uh, more conservative, politically conservative Christians and, and Trump voters in particular. It, it reminds me so much of that. Um, I, I feel like I'm reliving it to some extent. Actually, it's funny, A.D. Robles, who's hitting it out of the park lately with a lot of his videos, I haven't seen all of them, but the ones I've seen have been a, a phenomenal. Um, he said something in, in part of the video I watched uh, earlier this afternoon uh, about feeling the same exact way. It, it almost reminds me of uh, what, what G3 is doing right now, it, what Nine Marks did in a way. Nine Marks um, was a, an organization, still is, committed to a, a biblical ecclesiology. And they went outside of that to start talking about race-related issues and social issues. And once they did that, they went pretty much woke, at least now that you would consider it light woke, but at the time it sure seemed woke, especially with what Thabiti and Abuile and Jonathan Lehman were putting out there. And, and, and so... <laughs> I, I think I'm seeing the same thing or something's very similar happen right now. Uh, there's a lot of smearing going on, a lot of um, accusations of white nationalism and uh, racism uh, and that kind of thing. Uh, there's misrepresentation of what people who advocate for cultural Christianity are actually advocating for. I actually had a long discussion today with uh, Dr. Russell Fuller about all this, and we're, we're completely on the same page that um, obviously – we need the gospel. Obviously, we need hearts converted. No one disputes that. The question is, what society do you want to live in? Do you want to live in a society where we have, uh, as I put in a post yesterday, coffee shops that you walk into, and instead of pride flags, you see crosses and you hear Christian music and people are friendly? Or do you want the pride flags and the raunchy music and rude people? And which, which do you want? And it's easy for me to see this just because I live in New York, and when I travel, which I do quite a bit, especially to uh, more rural, southern and midwestern areas, 
I am refreshed when I see all the Christian symbolism and uh, and some of you in the Bible Belt don't maybe realize how bad it is, but if I go into a state park, I'm passing a rainbow flag on my way in. If I go to the grocery store, I'm passing rainbow flags on my way in all months of the year, not just June. That's just the way it is. If I drive down the road from my house, I'm passing rainbow flags, not just ones that private citizens are putting up, but ones government officials have put up. This is the way it is. And um, there's more that could be said, but we're not thinking in terms of uh, this is going to Christianize everyone's heart so that they're born again if there are Christian laws or Christian social customs. That's that's separate uh, in a way. It's, it's, it's not totally disconnected because the reminder of Christianity and the reminder of Christ that comes from Christian symbolism is important. And that's what can actually lead people to repentance sometimes. There's a number of people who have posted online during this whole controversy how much Christian culture actually meant to them when they strayed from their their roots, so to speak, their habits that they had of going to church when they were young. Uh, they knew that there was a place to go back to. They knew that when they got so far off, like the prodigal son, that they could actually return home, and that uh, and for some of them, that was the time they were actually converted. So. Um, I, there's so much I want to say. I, I don't feel like I can now, but we're going to share a lot more on Monday night. And uh, for those who haven't uh, listened to my previous podcasts from this week, uh, I have reached out to um, at least one person at G3 to see if they'd be willing to talk. I know Joel Webbins publicly reached out to Josh Bice. I know A.D. Robles uh, reached out to, um, actually, he never gave me permission to share this, but I think he'd be fine with it. I mean, he's He's, in a good faith way, tried to reach out to Owen Strand and, and I think others as well. And um, it's just not, you can pray. It doesn't seem like it's going the way that we would hope. Uh, the, there really does seem to be a schism forming here. And it, it shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't be this way. Um, it, it seems to me like if we are careful and we try to understand what both sides are saying, that... Uh, well, in this case, it's really if if we are careful and try to understand accurately what the Christian nationalist side, if you want to call it that, or those who just more broadly believe in a Christendom of some kind as a default setting in society, what they what they are saying, what they believe, what they're articulating, it's not what you're seeing represented in some of the articles that I'm reading on G3's website, or and especially some of the tweets that I've seen. Uh, coming from people. So, so anyway, no disdain. No, I, I look, I am, I, I am for very much for uh, my, my brothers and sisters in Christ who might disagree with Stephen Wolf, right? I'm very much wanting to pr provide clarity as much as possible and build a bridge if that's possible. But I'm going to just cut it straight with you guys. I think A.D. Robles this last week uh, with his instincts has been spot on. I think he's right to see what he's seeing. And I'm not going to let him just go out there alone and start making the observations that are getting him in trouble without backing him up to some extent. And, and I will back him up on this. The move that I see right now being made on quote unquote Christian nationalists and purveyors of Christendom and cultural Christianity is very similar to the move that was made on Trump voters by the woke church. I see very little difference uh, in the tactics that are being used, uh, meaning the, the misrepresentation, 
taking inconsequential or anonymous voices and making it sound like they're representative in um, uh, hurling charges of unnecessary charges of some kind of racial insensitivity. Uh, it's, uh, I don't know, there, there's probably more, but there's, I put out a, a list, I think, of four or five things the other day of, of parallels I saw on social media. And, and it just, it, I, I think there's also just this feeling I have. And, and I've, I can't say that I haven't totally felt this for a few years. There's been part of me that has seen little things that I don't really talk about on the podcast, but that have made me somewhat cynical or skeptical or cautious or, and, and now I think it's just, everything's coming to the surface. And, and to be honest with you, that might be a good thing. It really might be. Um, and, and my hope still is that if we can really come to the surface with all the disagreements and differences and find out where those things are, we can have a mature adult spirited discussion about it, but it's not going to happen if the starting point is total vilification and destruction of someone's personal character. If it's cancel culture, which is what I'm seeing right now, uh, then it, it's the response is going to be probably uh, a lot of rejection. Uh, I, I've seen some mocking from people who don't have much of a platform, perhaps, but they, uh, they're they active on social media. They're, they're going to be mocking. Remember Phil Johnson told me once, this was years ago, he said that, uh, Phil Johnson from Grace to You, he told me that uh, one of the reasons that the emergent church failed was because they could not, they, they didn't have humor. And they, the left doesn't. They They can't meme and they don't have humor. And they can't laugh at themselves, which honestly, that is a sign of maturity if you can laugh at yourself. I'm not saying that uh, arguments that are really cutting against your personal character are always funny or anything, but in general, idiosyncrasies, uh, poking fun at at just you know differences, things that get under people's skin, uh, there there should be a, a, a give and take and a fun. I, I think uh, that that's just part of I think being mature to, to some extent and. You know, I don't do I have a Bible verse to back that up. Maybe maybe if I thought about it long enough, I can't think of one right now. I just that's always how I've I've thought. The people that are in my life who are the most Christian and mature tend to be able to laugh at themselves. They don't take themselves too seriously because there's a humility there. So anyway, um, Phil Johnson told me that the emergent church didn't have any of that. Brian McLaren and Doug Padgett and all these guys, when they were mocked, when they were memed, uh, and, and we didn't call them memes yet, but there were these demotivational posters that Pyromaniacs, which was Phil Johnson's blog, they were posting. When when those um, those pr- sort of pre-meme memes were posted, the emergent church people just couldn't contend with it. And it was one of the reasons they were brought down. And I think um, something similar might be happening right now with people who don't really have big platforms, but they are, they're frustrated. They're laymen. They're in churches. They just really want to see... Some, some positive momentum. Let, let's rally somewhere and try to carve out some kind of uh, an existence for Christians. And Christian culture is not a bad thing. Where you hear it from everyone. Everyone in our life says that. And to hear people that are pre- pastors or conference speakers that you looked up to say things that sound similar is discouraging. And so it's it's those kinds of people who are making memes. Some of them are quite funny but they're mocking those who they consider now to be somewhat of a threat, even in their own church. And, and, and we're still in the beginning stages of this. And my, my appeal is, brothers, it doesn't have to be this way. 
It doesn't have to be this way. If we slow down, if we stop with the personal attacks, personal character assassinations against people like Stephen Wolf, I think that maybe we can build some bridges. We can listen to one another, but my fear is that the time for that has already passed. And, um, and, and that's just my assessment. So more coming on Monday about that. I want to let everyone know. Um, the main topic, though, for this podcast is what is a nation? And this is one of, I think, the, move, the working issues. If you want to get down to brass tacks, what is actually motivating this disagreement? So many people don't know. that. Where are the lines? Um, one of the complaints about Stephen Wolf, and I understand this one, is that he's too vague, he's too general, he's too academic. And I, we don't understand what he's talking about exactly. We just want, we want the Bible to be implemented as much as possible in our public life. And we want to support Christian laws. And, and, and like the post I made about the coffee shop I told you about, that resonates with people abstractions and uh, theological and philosophical arguments that are complicated and historically driven, maybe not quite as much. Um, I think both are necessary. You need all kinds of people to form a Christian public theology. You need your philosophers and your theologians, you know, your your more egghead types, but you also need the practical uh, moms for liberty kind of on the ground types of people who are going to actually make tangible visions come true. So um, all of these things are needed. Stephen's just one person in, in, I think, a broad tapestry. And there's more resources that are coming out. It's not just going to be Stephen. Uh, it's going to be many more. Um, Stephen and Andrew, I guess, Torba being the two main recognizable figures. There's going to be many more. And there's going to be disagreements even within that movement. But, uh, but that the movement is a general move towards, you know, let's conserve the Christian culture that we've been given. If you're in an area where you still have some of that, conserve it. Uh, and where we can, let's try to be more aggressive. Let's try to implement some of these things. And prudence is going to guide a lot of this. You can't implement a Sabbatarian law, let's say. I'm not even saying I would be totally in favor of that, but um, using that as an example, if you wanted to do that in order to uh, honor uh, the Sabbath, then it's going to work a lot better in a small town in Alabama, perhaps, where most of the population agrees with you, or at least a significant portion, uh, than it would in, uh, you know, let's say, you know, Boston or something, New York. Uh, so, so it would cause more tension and be a more unnecessary, and you can work towards other goals in those places. So there's there's obviously prudence in whatever approach you take, but the point is, you know, let's try to take an approach. Let's, let's really try to um, support the, the morality of Scripture in the public realm. And there's a few people that are trying to come up with outside the box and new ways of doing that in the new paradigm that we live in. And we do live in a new paradigm. Uh, so um, all that to say, I probably should get to the topic here, but one of the fundamental differences I see is in what Stephen Wolf did in defining what a nation is. Now, if you notice, I just want you to think about this with me for a moment. Observe that a lot of the discussions, the panels, the speeches you've heard on quote-unquote Christian nationalism don't ever define what a nation is. As I recall, Andrew Torba's book did not define what a nation is. Uh, if, if I'm not, someone might come up with a passage, but I don't remember it being there. Um, some of the things that are, have been passed around from like uh, the Founders Conference where Vody Bauckham and Tom Askell are talking about this. I don't believe they defined, at least in detail, what a nation was. It's always um, more or less assumed. 
And that's fine. Um, I'm, there's no criticism that I have about that, but it is a hole that needs to be de developed. Kind of, it's pretty fundamental. Stephen is one of the few people who said, you know, I'll take a crack at that. I'll try to define what a nation is. And he didn't even define it along the lines of genetics or um, uh, purely lineage. What he tried to do was say it's shared experiences, memories, uh, ancestral memories that makes a people a people. So you can have people of different genetic varieties, but they have to have shared experience. And I think I agree with Stephen on this. I would say that um, biblically, as we're going to go through a number of passages, I hope that's okay with everyone. We're going to do a lot of Bible today. I think based on um, the passages of scripture that uh, I'm going to read to you today, I think we can conclude that nations do have fathers. There is a lineage component to it. But just like a family that adopts children, we have something called assimilation. And the Israelites had it too. Uh, you, you could be a proselyte and you could come into uh, Israel. It wasn't just a religious thing. It was also becoming part of, of them, of their people. And that doesn't mean that you were now automatically given all the rights that the various tribes were given, like land rights and things. But um, but you would be part of what what I guess would be a ancient uh, parallel to the body politic. So, so these things do exist. Um, they're, they're, you're still barriers, right? You, you can still only go to the court of the Gentiles when you're worshiping and, and things like that. But, but there was some degree of assimilation, and I think that's what we've adopted today. And that's what I agree with, is that people who have come even to the United States, and, and I view the United States more as an empire than a nation. I think it's composed of various nations. But whether you are in uh, the South or the Midwest, or the Northeast, or the Pacific Midwest, or the uh, Southwest. You know, all these places uh, have nations, and some of them have multiple nations. Like in Arizona, you have multiple um, Native American tribes that have their own nation, like the Navajo Nation, right? That's what it's called. It's its own people. Is it in America? Sure it is, but it's its own nation. Um, but the people who have come over to the United States and settled in various areas have... Uh, either assimilated by contributing and blending with the people who were there, in which case you have the formation of a, a new nation that has roots, like the Samaritans of Scripture, where you have uh, the Jewish people blending with, uh, with, with, I guess it would have been Sumerians, Philistines, um, Assyrians. Um, you, you have a, a new thing formed. And that's, I think... Um, that that doesn't take that that doesn't mean that nations don't exist just because uh, you can blend them together. Just like we wouldn't say families don't exist just because there's marriages, right? Nations are something that actually do exist, tangibly speaking. That is controversial today to say that to say that nations actually exist, uh, to say that they're they're people groups in particular places with particular habits, with particular ways of life, uh, ways of uh, of even religion and. Uh, the, to, to say that um, you can have a nation where people don't share any of the traits that are commonly associated with nations, they don't share the same religion, they don't share uh, the same uh, habits or traditions or rituals, they don't share uh, a common lineage at all, uh, they don't share um, the cuisine, they don't share music, they don't share, if they don't share anything, then people have nothing in common and they're just fractured, but they're all dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal or something. Well, that's not a nation. That's just not a nation. That's, that's an idea. That's an abstraction. That's a principle.
and and we're going to see that as we go through scripture and and so so my challenge is if this offends any of you if this is hard for you to hear uh if if it, it, i'll say one thing first if you're hearing me say oh it's just for white people in america then you aren't listening that's not what i'm saying at all uh black people chinese people that go back to their ancestors go back to asia and all kinds of places just as american as i am um but again, I think America is more of an empire. And again, I believe that you can adopt or assimilate people who are different genetically and culturally into uh, your particular group and you can become one. Uh, that's what marriages have done throughout time. So if you hear me saying like, oh, you're not included because you're of some other genetic, uh, you, know, you have different genetics than I do or something, you, you are not listening. And I don't think you're listening to Stephen Wolf either because he is not saying that. Uh, at all. Um, I've, I've read him very carefully and I've tried to really parse these things out. And, and the people who are really trying to think through these things in depth, biblically, philosophically, um, logically, are, I think, being somewhat misrepresented and shouted out by those who, frankly, and, and I don't know how else to say this, I'm trying to be fair, but they haven't thought about it as deeply, perhaps. And they're just assuming this proposition nation idea, which is so innovative and new in, the, in, in all of human history. And it's not working. It's clearly not working in the American context. So now that we're 20 minutes in, let's get to the meat of it, all right? Let me take you through some Bible verses to demonstrate some of what I'm saying. Genesis 12, chapter 2 says, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. Now, who's this referring to? It's referring to Abraham. Abraham's the father. We even sang it when I was a kid. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them, and so are you. And of course, we're talking about the spiritual um, heritage there. But the, the parallel, the tangible example in Genesis 12 that uh, is then used to um, define the spiritual nation is an actual physical nation. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you shall be a blessing. So we, we find from the earliest pages of scripture, look at any of the genealogies, that those genealogies are important, that nations have fathers, uh, they're people groups. Um, Deuter and we could probably talk about the Tower of Babel. I skipped over that in my verses here, but of course, language is a huge part of this. And I'm going to, to be talking about that in probably the next episode, how language affects culture, because it affects it in ways that you're, you're probably not even aware of. It is going to be so interesting, and I, I can't wait to to put that podcast out there. But uh, Deuteronomy 23, 7 through 8 says this, You shall not detest an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not detest an Egyptian, because you were an alien in his land. The sons of the third generation who are born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. Well, why would you read that, John? Well, because this is talking to the children of Israel, the Jewish people. And it's saying that an assimilation must take place. Before you can enter the assembly of the Lord, part of the national identity as well was the spiritual uh, rituals. Uh, before you can do that, um, it, it's, got, it's got to be the sons of the third generation who are born to them. Those are the people who can enter the assembly of the Lord. I find that fascinating. Now, I'd be curious, maybe someone has a different take on this, but this looks to me like there's some kind of um, a process that needs to take place that is a longer process than we are comfortable with. Uh, generations have to take place uh, of assimilation and familiarizing yourself with the Hebrew culture before you can actually allow them into the assembly of the Lord until you can become one with them. 
uh, in some way. It, it's going to take time. And, and that's one of the things that I would just, um, I would say about multiculturalism. It's not that we're, that people like myself who are politically conservative are against other people coming to the United States. We just don't like the rate at which it's happening and the destabilizing effect that it has and the lack of assimilation. And those are the main things. And that's what, so when Stephen Wolf says, I think we just need to shut the border down for a while. Think about Deuteronomy 23, uh, three generations before an Edomite could enter the assembly of the Lord. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty long, isn't it? Um, Daniel chapter two, verses 40 through 43. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron. Inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all the pieces, uh, things, these in pieces. In that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. This is talking about Rome, okay? Um, as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men. Hmm, the seed of men? The seed of men. Well, this is birth. This is uh, family. So there's going to be intermarriage. That's what it's saying, okay? But they will not adhere to one another. Uh-oh. Even as iron does not combine with pottery. So you're going to have intermarriage. You're going to have mingling of different peoples, but they're not going to adhere to one another. It's it's going to be brittle. It's going to be weak. And that's exactly what happened with the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire extended. It wasn't a nation. It was an empire. Uh, you had the, the nation of the, the Romans uh, versus, well, not versus, but incorporating into themselves all these various people groups, and it was too big. And eventually it collapsed. And I would submit to you the same thing happened with the, the Ottoman Empire, the Turkish Empire. That's why Lawrence of Arabia, if you've seen that film or read uh, Seven Pillars of Wisdom, uh, T.E. Lawrence was able to lead a revolt against the Ottomans because the Arabs weren't part of the same nation. And they were being controlled by the Ottomans. So they, they had a different identity. It's why uh, the British uh, making you know, the modern state of Iraq the way it is, uh, is a disaster. The Kurds aren't going to go with the Shiites who aren't going to go with the Sunnis. These are different. In, in effect, uh, when you have generations of intermarriage and habits forming, you have different nations at a certain point. Now, I'm not going to claim I know exactly where that point is, but there are some obvious things like language that would point to that. Um, the same, same thing I think is happening in the United States. And this is why this question is so important. What is a nation? It's like Matt Walsh's what is a woman or uh, the Southern Baptist Convention's problem with what is a pastor or what is a marriage? All these definitions are under assault. And what is a nation is no exception. We need to answer this question, I think. Uh, if you're going to talk about nationalism at all and critique it or support it, you're going to have to talk about what is a nation before you can get to that. And just for the record, I'm a localist guy. I'm a federalist guy. I like... Uh, I think we had a federal republic from the beginning, and it, there was room for multiple nations being part of that. But we did have shared um, Anglo-Protestantism, I would say, uh, for the most part, okay? There's exceptions, but for the most part in the United States uh, in the early founding period. And that was the glue that kept us together until we had a war. <laughs> and well, not even until then. We had the Hartford Convention where New England was trying to secede from the rest of the country. They almost did. 
uh, and I believe joined Canada. And that we had there was conflict from the beginning because there were differences between the people groups who came here even then. Now, think about that today with all the different peoples coming here now. Uh, do you think we're in trouble? You bet we're in trouble. We're doing the same thing the Roman Empire did. Uh, they will combine with one another in the seat of men, but they will not adhere to one another. And if there's any group of people not adhering to one another, a group of people that don't have each other's back, that are suspicious of one another, uh, I would say that is in the United States right now. And that's why those of my parents' generation, uh, and they're baby boomers, uh, and, and I know some people tried to correct me in a, in a video recently. They said, wouldn't they be Gen X? No, they're, they're baby boomers. I, we, in my family, we tend to have kids later <laughs> than other Christian families. Um, you know, they grew up in a world where you did have each other's back. Even Democrats and Republicans were more united than they are today. So anyway, um, all that to say, the scripture is not very in favor of multiculturalism. Psalm 33, 12 says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. Blessed. Is, so, so there's a general thing here. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. I take that as a, a, something that can apply not just to Israel, but to any nation. Now, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance, I think that's speaking about Israel. Um, maybe, maybe I, I don't know. I, I haven't done a deep dive on this, but I've always taken this verse to mean that those peoples who worship the Lord are going to be blessed by him. Um, and, and yeah, it's not exactly the same covenant that Israel had, but there, if you worship the Lord, if you support his law, again, Isaiah talks about his law was given as a light to the nations, then you are going to reap benefits. Psalm fourteen thirty four. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Well, what's righteousness? Right? Who, who defines that? Well, it's the Lord. Um, one of the silly debates I saw yesterday online uh, was between, well, I don't want to say who it is, but there was a silly debate. And it was, uh, it was regarding whether or not we should have Christian laws or just moral laws. And I thought this is one of the dumbest things I've ever heard of. What is a moral law? It's a Christian law. It's a Christian law. Uh, where do you get a standard for righteousness? From Christ Jesus, who's Lord. This notion that we can just separate that and just have moral laws, but it's not directly related to Jesus or something. Uh, it's indirectly related. I don't get it. I really don't get it. Uh, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And again, if you look up in any concordance, these terms, whether the Hebrew uh, word goim or um, in Matthew, uh, I think we're probably looking at ethnos there. It means peoples. It's, it's pretty general, people groups. And, and the original audience would have known what was being referred to there. Um, Acts 17, and he made from every uh, one man, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. So from one man, every nation, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Wow, there's, there's boundaries around nations. There's geographic places they, they live in. Yeah, you bet there is. Romans 9, uh, 3 through 4 says, For I wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons, and the glory and covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises. So if you ask the question, was Paul a Christian, a Jew, or a Roman? The answer is yes. He was all three. He was a citizen of the Roman Empire. He was 
ethnically a Jew. And, and he's speaking about this as someone from the inside. It's not like the other verses where we're speaking about nations as a set of, um, uh, a set of things that exist in this world, and there's multiple varieties of them, and so they fit into this category of nation. Paul's not, the word nation's not even here. He's talking about the nation of Israel from the inside. And so he's using personal language, my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. So it's a very personal thing when you are part of a nation. That's part of your identity. Paul was part of the church, but he didn't lose his connection to his people. Really important for us to remember that. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, this is referring to the church, uh, the, the believers in Jesus Christ of the New Testament. They're a chosen race. They're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So you have these terms that are um, applied in other places in Scripture to actual, tangible, physical uh, nations now applied to the spiritual reality of the church. But I, I want to just point something out to you. Those who want to use a verse like this to say, well, uh, national differences don't mean anything anymore because the only thing that matters is whether or not you're a Christian or not, because uh, it says that uh, the, that nations or national identity is now fulfilled in some kind of a spiritual identity. I want to just ask the question, well, how did the original audience take this? When, when Peter is saying you're a chosen race, a holy nation, what thought came to their mind? Did they think, oh man, Peter's inventing something that's never, this has never uh, happened in the history of the world. There are no nations. Well, obviously not. Obviously they know that he's connecting it to something they have experience with. They know what a nation is. They know what a nation is. Um, and nations have certain characteristics. I didn't put the verse here, but even, you know, things like Cretans are, are all liars and stuff. Like there's characteristics that nations have. You can identify them. You know where they live. You know what, how they operate in general. Uh, and, and so, yeah, maybe that's stereotyping, but it's in scripture. So the people who would have heard this originally, they only know the spiritual reality of the, the church as a holy nation because they understand what tangibly a nation is and how that's a picture. Just like we're part of the family of God, it doesn't eliminate the fact that you're part of a family. That's ridiculous. Obviously, you're still part of a tangible family in the temporal world doesn't eliminate that identity. That identity is still there just as much as it was before. You just have a new identity as well. Now you're part of this spiritual reality. And isn't it a wonderful spiritual reality uh, to be part of? Uh, Revelation 7, 9, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation, and all tribes and peoples and tongues. This is one of the clear passages you have on divisions of people. Uh, you have nations, you have tribes, you have peoples, you have tongues. Um, now, one of the things you find in Scripture is sometimes groups are, uh, like for instance, Gentiles would be an example of this, are put under a broad category. So any nation that's not Jewish is going to be part of the category Gentiles. It's similar to how um, people talk about whites today. You know, it, it, it sometimes it's almost offensive because you're just like, how can you just group all whites in, in, into one category? I mean, what do I have in common with someone who's in uh, Russia, who speaks a different language, who has different traditions? right? Uh, they're not really, we're not part of the same nation. Um, but, but it's a general category for a very particular American context because of political behavior and social behavior primarily. That's why it exists. 
And people who analyze those things are really forced to use those categories. You, you don't really have alternatives. Um, so so these are those are artificial constructs, but they represent something that's tangible and real. So race isn't, or nations aren't, um, social constructs, which is what critical race theory would want you to think. Uh, they are, they're tangible realities, but we come up with categories and ways of describing them that are social constructs. I hope people can see the difference between those two things. Very important. Uh, what I have found is that those, uh, I think, um, on the woke side, and this is one thing they share in, well, some of those on the woke side. I think, yeah, I, I would say those on the woke side. Sure. Yeah. I'm comfortable saying that. And those um, that are now on the, um, so, I don't know how to even say this. I, the, the G3 side, do I say that? Or um, some, I don't want to be disrespectful, but s some people call it big Eva and little Eva. Uh, maybe that's a term. Maybe, I don't know. Whatever that kind of circuit is, that, that, uh, the people who speak at that conference, many of them, not all of them, they they have a shared understanding of this, that race is a social construct. They both agree with that tenet of critical race theory. And it is a tenet of critical race theory. It is a also a tenet of neoconservatism. It is a, a universalist, I guess, or an alienist kind of impulse that exists uh, that downplays the uh, natural affections and attachments that are particular to certain places and peoples. And it kind of universalizes it. And um, it, what I wonder is whether or not the battle we've been seeing online for the last two weeks is somewhat related to a battle between paleoconservatives and neoconservatives. Or uh, some people are, are saying it's, it's boomer cons versus more based people. But I think that's what they're referring to. They're, it's really neoconservatives and paleoconservatives. Uh, you could even think of it as those who are for particularity, paleoconservatives, and those who are for some kind of a, a universalism of some kind or a, a globalism of some kind. Um, and, and not all of these people would say they're for globalism at all. But, but the, the point is that eliminating distinctions is one of the projects of the globalists. It leads to it. So all that to say, uh, Revelation 7 clearly shows that there are peoples, there are, there are tribes, nations, peoples, tongues, all these things, all the ways that you can slice human beings, uh, they are all part of this universal church, but they have their particularities. They, they retain those, these particularities uh, that were theirs in the temporal realm, that membership in groups that did not just include Christians, uh, that were part of the creation order. Um, and, and so in another video that I'm going to put out, hopefully later this week, I'm going to talk about this a little more and how part of God's good creation is language. Uh, he didn't stop creating in uh, the, the first six days of creation. I would argue that actually, even at the Tower of Babel, those languages came from somewhere. God created them. And we have to think about whether or not those are good things. Was it good for God to divide the peoples up by language and put them in various areas? Uh, was, was that a good thing of God uh, that he did that? doesn't mean that you can't immigrate. doesn't mean that you can't move or colonize or whatever, but it just means that particularity though is important in some way because we see it not just in the beginning in Genesis, it shows up in Revelation. Particularity is important even in Revelation. And so um, I would just encourage those who are busy attacking cultural Christianity, Christian nationalism, Christendom, 
uh, and any any of those people who are trying to paint this as somehow a, a white supremacy or white nationalism or you know something like that, um, you know even even people like uh, myself who uh, think that it's great that um, there's so many Christians who live in Nigeria and, and I've talked about it on the podcast many times because we have a connection with equipping the persecuted in my in Nigeria, you know that they have an opportunity to uh, have a a Christian nation in the sense that they can adopt Christian moral principles. The same way that when we say that's a Christian family or that's a Christian business, we're not saying everyone is saved in the family or everyone's saved at the business. We're saying they go to church or they, they play Christian music there. Or they, they, they have uh, the default setting is Christianity for their culture. Uh, so um, yeah, anyway, uh, I just wanted to share that with you, all of that. Uh, about nations and and I'm trying to hopefully be helpful to to get down to some of the things that I think are fundamental in this debate. Some of the the things that people are truly disagreeing on below uh, the surface, even when uh, on the surface it's like insults and smears and it doesn't make any sense and it's people getting offended. You know, I I've tried to think long and hard about what's the actual disagreement here. And and I do think it, it might have something to do with that. There's a uh, people from a more theological, exegetical background, seminary people who probably many of them haven't put a lot of time into reading. Uh, they're, they're not reading Paul Gottfried, Richard Weaver, Russell Kirk, uh, Roger Scruton as much. They're not they're not like familiarizing themselves with all those kinds of people. Uh, they're certainly not, um, and maybe they're reading more neoconservatives, uh, you know, as they go, but that's not their expertise. That's not their field. That's not their wheelhouse. And I think they might've just walked into a debate that, uh, that have, has had sides going back for decades. Uh, and it, it's an age old debate really, but it's, it's, um, well, I shouldn't say it's age old. It's, it's actually fairly unique to the modern world, but uh, the beliefs that there's particularities that is age old, and they're walking into something that I'm I'm wondering if many of them are even aware of, if if they're ignorant of uh, this battle and how it's taken place over the years, and you know, like the difference between the National Review and Chronicles, and uh, the 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 fight between Harry Jaffa and Mel Bradford. I mean, I, many of you in the audience may not even be familiar with these things, but these things actually very much on a political philosophy level, they play into the de current debate that's happening in evangelicalism. Part of what I'm trying to write about, part of what I need to communicate to everyone in, in the next book that I write, because I really want Christians to understand some of the things that have taken place beforehand. And because they've taken place in non-evangelical settings, whether that's in Roman Catholic settings or whether that is in just politically conservative settings, um, many evangelicals just aren't aware of it. And, uh, and so, um, Stephen Wolf is definitely a paleo conservative. He writes like one, uh, sure. He is quoting all the time theologians, uh, from hundreds of years ago, uh, reformed theologians. That's, but he it is obvious to anyone who knows anything about paleo conservatism. When you read Stephen Wolf, he is in that tradition very much. So, I mean, he starts the whole book with a quote from Sam Francis. So, you know, that's, that's something that if you don't understand where he's coming from and you hear language you haven't heard before and you knee jerk that, oh, it must be white nationalism or something, it, it, it might be due to the fact that you're not quite aware of some of these debates that have already taken place and what these terms mean and, and all of that. So 
We need more clarification, but I figured this would be a good place to start. What does the Bible say about what a nation is? And um, my contention is uh, the Bible uh, does give us a, a uh, an idea, and we can, I think, distill that into somewhat of a definition that nations are particular peoples with particular cultures, uh, with uh, particular regions that they dwell in, uh, particular habits, particular religious rituals uh, that are by and large part of uh, the nation's identity. And, you know, these nations also share languages. Uh, they, um, there's a somewhat of an in-group preference and a trust that exists among the members of that nation. And that's why often nations are then also combined with uh, governments, that uh, those they, they come together collectively to form an arrangement that is mutually beneficial for the common good of the people that exist there. So, I mean, this is just basic stuff, but this is, I think, what a nation is. And I think that's what you see in Scripture. It's just assumed in Scripture. Nations have fathers. Uh, they have boundaries. Um, they are particular peoples. And if we can... If we can just adopt that, if we can agree on that, I think we will make a lot, a lot, a lot of headway. And yeah, that's going to maybe put you out on the outs with the neoconservatives because you're rejecting the proposition nation idea that nations are just the ideas that people uh, can assent to. Uh, that's You can't reduce a nation to just that. That might be a feature in a nation, just like uh, participating in religious rituals and so forth. Might You might say that's a feature in general of a nation. Um we actually have religious rituals in this country that everyone does participate in or has until recently, whether they were Christians or not, believe it or not, if you think about it. Uh, every time you see uh, the president or any member of a jury or anywhere uh, swear on a Bible, you're actually seeing a religious ritual there. Uh, it, it is uh, the belief that there's a system of rewards and punishments that the God of the Bible will implement against you if you lie. Uh, we have shared celebrations of various holidays like Christmas, uh, like Easter. I contend that the new calendar that is forming before us is the enactment of a new religion, a social justice religion, uh, and it's new r religious rituals. But we actually do have r rituals in our society that we've had for a long time, and people just honored them whether they were born again or not, and uh, and that's quickly coming to an end. So. I've talked for too long. I hope that was helpful for many of you. More coming. Uh, God bless. And um, thank you for your continued support of this podcast. For many of you who uh, have prayed for me uh, while I'm traveling. And it just means a lot. God bless. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.